Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. One of the things that we're going to do is, is just recap the chat that Chris and I had a few weeks ago where we talked about our missions and we talked about a couple of projects that were going on and then we talked about our financial um, situation here at, at Gateway. So I'm going to try and do a real brief Reader's Digest condensed version of that, um, that particular topic. So let me start with, with missions. Um, from the giving that we receive each year, from your tithes and from the other income that we receive from leased car parks and that kind of stuff, we dedicate 10% to go towards local and international missions. And we've got the privilege of supporting missions and missionaries all throughout the world, places like India and Cambodia and Indonesia, uh, France, Slovenia and Nepal, and there's probably a few other countries that, that we also support as well. So it's fantastic to know that the ties that you provide into the house here goes back out and supports a number of people that are impacting uh, their communities in different parts of, of the world. And in addition to that regular support that, that we provide, the leadership team a few years ago decided that they would like to gift away um, a further 10% of money that we'd set aside for our building project here. And so what we did is we gave some money to Holly Bolly, and, and many of you will know the Wilkinson G's and the work that they do through Holly Bolly. In addition to that, we also gave away a further $100,000 just in this last financial year to Slovenia, to the Scobies and the work that they do there. They'd really felt uh, a real call on their lives to establish a church building there. It's really important that that happens in Europe, apparently. And so we really felt the need to uh, send some money over to them. So they're just about at the start of a building project, and we were able to send $100,000 through to them. So I wanted you to know that you're part, very much part of what God is doing throughout the world and through people and through missions and through missionaries and it's all happening because of the tithes that, that you give into the house here. So thank you. Uh, we're really excited also to be inviting our missionaries back to see us in May 2023. We try and do this every four years or so, but COVID got in the, in the way. Um, and so they're coming to visit us in May 2023. We'll be inviting them to come back to Waikato and, and to spend some time with us. So we're looking forward to that. They'll be able to share some stories with you guys and you'll be able to hear from them some of the things that they've been able to achieve whilst they've been over, over there. We'll also be shouting out for some accommodation for some people that might need uh, that when they arrive here. So um, keep your ear to the ground for that happening in May 2023. Not only do we support overseas missions, we also look at local missions, and we've been able to support local mission here as well as some charitable trusts around the place. Um, and I spoke also a few weeks ago about our Barnabas Fund, one of our local missions uh, that we're able to, to utilise. Barnabas Fund was set up in 2014 by uh, some of the members of our Gateway congregation here. They really wanted to set up a, a fund that was able to be used when people were in need from our Gateway family. And last year, we were able to um, send out about a 1,000 meals to families um, that just needed a bit, of, a bit of help. We were able to financially support about 40 families um, 
just circumstances happen, don't they, where life gets in the road sometimes, and they just needed some financial support. So we're able to support 40 families through the dedicated funding that you provide through the Barnabas Fund. So thank you for that. You guys are really making a difference for those that are, that are contributing specifically to that, that fund. And speaking about making a difference, this year we started off a project called Changemakers. It's a, a program that's run by Christine Forster, one of our, one of our staff members here. She had this vision uh, to try and help people that had missed out on some life skills that perhaps you and I take for granted. And so she wrote this program. She went and engaged with a whole lot of agencies throughout the Waikato, and she started to receive referrals from the, the likes of the correction department. And she's been able to lead a whole stack of people through an eight-week, eight-topic course teaching them about life skills, teaching them about decision-making, how to deal with anger, how to deal with um, relationships. And the feedback that we've had from these individuals and from the parole officers themselves um, have really let us know that actually this is making a tremendous difference because people are making decisions um, wisely, decisions that they hadn't made uh, well before. And so we're just so, I don't know, blessed and privileged to be able to look outside these four walls and know that we can actually make a difference and provide the opportunity for them to experience uh, someone that's prepared to listen to them and, and take them through some, some life skills. So that's going really well. In fact, so well that we've got a waiting list of people that want to come through the course. So that's fantastic. We also spent some time talking about our desire to improve this building. We know that we need to do something. And we think we've landed on a fantastic concept design. What we don't know is how much it's going to cost, how we're going to make it all work. And so we really just want to ask you guys for the moment to pray. Would you pray that we would have wisdom uh, to make really good decisions about what's going to be required, not just for this generation, but for future generations of Gateway? Uh, really, really important. Another future event that's going to happen is um, our musos and, and our songwriters have been working on a bunch of songs and we hope to release in 2023 a, a worship project. And that's going to be cool. It's going to mean that we can sing some songs that have been homegrown. Uh, they're going to be applicable to our house here in Gateway. Uh, so we're looking forward to the team producing that in 2023. I then recall vividly asking for your endurance as I talked about our financial position. And I'm going to do that very briefly again this evening. Um, our financial year runs from January to December. And... Um, our last financial year, your tithes and the income that we received from other areas, such as our leased car parks, amounted to $2.27 million. And that was $146,000 more than we received last year. And remember, that was in the middle of COVID and business interruptions and our gatherings being interrupted. So we're really grateful for the faithfulness of people who just continue to tithe into Gateway. It was absolutely fantastic. Uh, it, it ended up with a surplus of $338,000 for the year. And what we do then is we take that $338,000 and we add it to our previous year's surpluses and we earmark it for our building project. Because we need to do two things. We need to firstly contribute some cash to our project, but we also need to demonstrate to a bank if we need to get some funding that we've got the ability to have a surplus at the end of the year just in case we need to, to borrow some money and they need to see that we can service some, some debt. So things have been going pretty well. We've been continuing uh, to generate surpluses, which is fantastic. We did, however, make a note that starting in about 2019, we started to see a decrease in the number of people tithing into, into Gateway. But 
interestingly, the, the dollar amounts remained relatively stable throughout out the years. And as I mentioned, we uh, tithing was $146,000 greater than last year. But we did wonder if the decrease in the people tithing would then equate to a decrease in the dollars being received uh, from tithes. And we, we've just sort of, over the last few months, up until about June this year, noted that um, we're about $140,000 uh, behind where we would like to be in terms of our budget. There's a few more months to go. And I do want to emphasize that... Um, while we're not where we want to be financially, we're in great positions to pay salaries to staff and to keep lights on and all that kind of stuff. We're in a good position to keep doing what we're doing. But we know that there's so much more to do. We know that we want to reach out more. That we, we, we know that there's projects that we want to do. So we're just going to keep an eye on that, and I'll keep you up to date as, as that goes on. Three final points. Number one, uh, we've got a, a fantastic bunch of staff that serve here so faithfully at Gateway, and we know that they could go outside these four walls and go and get a job and get a higher hourly rate than they're getting at the moment, but they choose to be here. They choose to serve here, and I'm really privileged to work with a fantastic bunch of people, and I know you are too. Um, secondly, um, we're in a good financial position. As mentioned, we continue to generate surpluses financially, and we had our external auditor visit us in February, as we do each year, and he reported no areas of concern, and I do want to uh, pay tribute to Kiers up the back there uh, for all the work she does to keep us um, under control with our finances, so we're doing a really good job there. We've got no debt here, which is fantastic. And finally, just on behalf of the leadership team, I do want to thank you sincerely for the tithing that you do provide into Gateway here. We literally can't do the things that we do without people uh, contributing financially, and we really thank you for the trust that you place in us um, and uh, the trust in us to be wise with, the re and with his resources. So we, we just wanted to say thank you. We really appreciate everything that you do. As I've mentioned, we've been talking about some interesting topics over the last few weeks. And we asked you about a week and a half ago to start sending some questions in that you wanted some clarity on. And so we're going to ask Don and Chris if you would come on up. Why don't you put your hands together? Welcome, Don and Chris. Thank you. Good evening. Only seems like this morning we did this before. It does seem like a deja vu, doesn't it? Does, it does. Add our welcome to that of Mike's. And as Mike has just said, we're going to go through um, this past series and pick up on some of the main threads of each, each message. As he said, we asked you for questions and we put these questions into uh, our discussion. So I'll, if you have any other questions going forward, hopefully uh, you can still email them in and we'll do our best to answer them. So before we actually get into the week-by-week -week breakdown of, of each message, I want to talk uh, at the why we did this. What was the rationale? What was the thinking? So, so, Don, can you talk to our rationale and our thinking behind this series and our conversations as a leadership team and you and I? What was our rationale behind it? A lot of it came out of the COVID uh, intervention. Um, obviously, not being able to meet. One of the things that people would constantly say is, I really miss the opportunity to gather. Mm -hmm. Um, and the whole idea of community and family really came out of, out of that break and uh, all of the issues that it raised. Um, not everybody uh, 
necessarily came back. I, uh, dealing with churches across the board, most churches would say they're probably 20% down in terms of their people. Um, Someone mentioned that um, COVID really was, in some respects, a discipleship stress test. Mm. And I think it has really impacted the church, and people have either decided that uh, they, don't, they didn't miss it and they enjoyed Sunday brunch and they planned not to bother coming back, or they felt a desperate need uh, in terms of family and community. So that was really kind of what motivated but it. That sifting isn't a bad thing. No, I don't think so. I mean, I guess no, no pastor or, or church who longs to see people gathered wants to see people scattered. Mm. But in some respects, the cultural Christianity or people that are just mm. doing it out of habit, a, a, a rote habit, not a, not a godly habit, but mm-hmm. um, suddenly decided since the habit was broken, they, broken, they would leave it broken. And I know we're not fully out of it yet, but in some ways this is a post-COVID reset. It is, yeah, yeah, it is very much so. Um, you, you said it's maybe not a bad thing. It, it always makes me think of Soren Kierkegaard, the da- Danish philosopher, who made the comment that when everybody is Christian, basically nobody is Christian. And uh, he, he thought that the secularization that he saw impacting the West wasn't necessarily a bad thing because it would sort people out. Mm. And, and at the end of the day, you'd find out who were disciples and who basically were cultural Christians. And I wonder if, if COVID isn't having something like that effect across, across the globe, actually, but here in New Zealand as well. I think talking to pastors in other countries, especially in the Western world, that's very true. It's yeah. very true for them. In our private and in our leadership conversations, we are using words like resilience, rhythm, and discipline a lot. Why is, why is this? Resilience, uh, the idea of resilience is the ability to bounce back after something difficult happens. And um, life, life is hard. You know, um, if it's good for you right now, fantastic. Um, the reality is life can be difficult. And when you go through the tough times, it's then you find out how much resilience has been built into the system. And it's the same for us as a church, I think. You know, you go through difficult times like this where, uh, you know, you're not gathering. Um, I, I've been in ministry close on 50 years. I don't, re- I don't recall any time that's been as hard to pastor as this season has been. We've often said in situations in the past, we've, we've known what was right or wrong. Yep. And we just had to have the um, strength of character to go through with it. But this yep. is completely different. Uh, this has been an incredible challenge and uh, incredibly tough on, on leaders People say, well, how's Gateway? I say, I don't know. Mm. It's like, what do you mean you don't know? I say, I don't know. I don't know what the landscape is like. You know, you, when you gather regularly, you get the kind of, uh, you get to feel the landscape. Um, with COVID, you're talking to a screen. I've got no idea who's listening. I mean, some of it was kind of really strange. I, I remember one of the very first um, recordings I did in that COVID season, I cracked a joke and there's no laughter, of course. And I thought, uh, oh, I wonder how that went. So I went home and told Karen the joke and she laughed. I thought, oh, thank goodness, you know. (coughs) But the feedback, you know, just just what you just did then, the feedback, there's nothing. It was just incredibly unnerving. One of the things that both of us learned is that we've both got faces for radio. Yeah. Great, great didn't work face. on the screen, did Great it? face for radio. No. no, no. Never got contacted by NBC. 
uh, Fox News or anybody else, you know, still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in a couple of the messages that you did, you talked about the church as a body and a family. How do we, as a local church, combat the individualism of our culture here in New Zealand? I think that's the $64 million question. Because, as I said this morning, we are immersed in a culture. When you're immersed in a culture, you actually don't recognize it. Um, you know, they say, if you, want to, uh, if you want to know about water, don't ask a fish. Because that's all they know. It's so uh, first nature to them that they couldn't tell you what it's like. And I, I don't, you know, although I've constantly talked about the radical, expressive individualism of the West, um, I, I think most of you probably... Uh, in, in many cases, it goes over your head. You don't even think about it. It's like, I don't even know what he's on about. Um, it's when actually you travel, and for those of you who have, you suddenly realize mm. that what you take for granted and didn't even think about actually is quite unusual. And uh, I, I, I found that, for example, going to the Philippines when I went my first time in the 1980s, and um, the, the whole idea of privacy... <laughs> which we Westerners, you know, you hear people say, I just need some me time, you know. Even, I even hear my grandkids, you know, sometimes saying, you know, this is five, seven, you know, 11 and 14, I just need some me time. And it's like, anyway, um, I didn't realize how that works until I went to the Philippines, and they don't know what me time is. They don't know what privacy is. You know, when you're raised in an extended family in a house that's probably about... Um, a couple of meters short of your lounge, um, privacy doesn't work. And, and um, mm. that, I didn't realize that until I traveled, and it's a lot like that. I, I was joking this morning. Uh, Filipinos, I, I love them to bits. They are unbelievably communal. They are very tactile. Um, you walk downtown, your friend will grab your hand, you know, and it's kind of like, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute, you know. Um, in fact, I remember being in the back of a pickup truck. We were driving to a conference, and it was packed with Filipinos, and I was sitting in the middle of them, and the guy next to me puts his hand on my leg and starts stroking my leg, and it's like, you know, <laughs> classic Kiwi sort of macho response, like, <laughs> it's, I, I went for a walk one time, and I just thought, I just got to get away, get a bit of time to think, and I must have been stopped five times by complete strangers who wanted to know why I was alone. Mm. Where's your companion? Why are you walking by yourself? Why, is no mates, Nigel? You know, like what's wrong? Um, I didn't ever see that until I went to the Philippines. You don't realise the radical, expressive individualism of our culture until you go to some of the communal cultures where they don't do life like mm. we do it. And the really hard thing is when I'm talking about expressive individualism, the need for community, that you study the scriptures in community, that you, that you do guidance in community, for most people it's absolutely strange. Like, I don't get what you're talking about. It's just me and Jesus. We've got the word, you know. I remember a song years and years ago, um, and it was me and Jesus. We, we don't need anybody else. That's right. And it's like, whoa, that's, that's expressive individualism. And, and somehow, with what we do, we want to keep talking about the power and the importance of community. As we talk about individualism and community, how do we balance, you know, part of our job is to teach people regular, to be regular in their disciplines and in their walk and in their faith, and how do we 
how do we talk about ethos without becoming pharisaical mm. or just religious? Again, $64 million questions. Um, I, I think that's the huge challenge of spiritual leadership, that you present a way that you then flesh out as a leader, and other people have got to say, yeah, I want, I want, that's what I want. I want to be like Jesus, you know? It's, it's easy to... Like people say to me, Don, for a church our size, we should have 10 times more people in our prayer meeting than we do. And I'm not going to fight with that, you know. Like we've got a church of, I don't know, I don't know how many are on our books, 1,500 people. You can come in on a Wednesday morning, on a good, on a good morning we might have 25, 30 people, and you think, okay, now that's not great proportions in terms of people buying into the idea of, of prayer. And so people have said to me, Don, we should have more people. You, you, you should do something about this. And I know that I could, trip, I could quadruple the number of people on our Wednesday morning. Mm. You give me a couple of weeks. I've been in this business long enough to know how to get people to do things. Guilt, guilt, okay? guilt is a marvelous motivator. <laughs> and you can lay it on powerful and thick. And I tell you what, you'll have people at the, the pre-meeting for the next at least six weeks and then and you've got to do it again and then you've got to do it again and then people get resistant to it and it's not the way to lead it's not how you motivate people people have got to catch something in their hearts mm. now the whole idea of ethos and discipline and resilience you want people to catch that but it cannot be externally imposed it must be caught in the heart you know, in Hebrews chapter 7, it says the law cannot perfect. Now, the law is good, it's holy, yeah. it's right, and it's, it's, you know, God's word. But the thing about the law is it's externally imposed, and that's why it can't perfect. It's got to come from here. So, you know, yep, we do talk about those things, um, and, and there is always the danger of, of Pharisaism. You know, somebody, I was telling them this morning, somebody who no longer comes to Gateway came up to me after we'd been doing a series on discipleship, and uh, they were in the business field, and they said to me, Don, what you need is some KPIs, some KPIs for, for discipleship. Well, I, I had to say, Chris, what are KPIs? Yeah, I didn't really, I knew what KPIs were, but and if you don't, they are key. Slip my mind. Performance indicators, okay. Some case. We need some. How do you measure your discipleship? And this might have been part of the reason why I didn't come back to Gateway anymore, but, but, but I said to him, really? And he said, yeah. And I said, you know who are really good at KPIs? And he said, I don't know who. And I said, the Pharisees. I said, they fasted two days a week. They prayed on the street corners. They gave a 10%. They ticked all the KPIs. You know, it's not about external KPIs. It's something that you either catch in your heart or it goes completely over your head. And I can't and won't um, manipulate people to do good things through wrong ways, through guilt. It doesn't work. I remember years and years ago, Chris talking to my pastor and he was really pushing us, you know. And, and uh, I probably shouldn't have, but I said to him, man, I want to go in this direction, but when you put your hands in my back and start shoving me, it, it, I, I want to dig my heels in. Just say, don't push me. I, I plan to go this way. Don't maneuver me. Don't manipulate me. Don't guilt trip me. Inspire me. Teach me. Show me the way. 
And I want to choose that way. So, I mean, that's taken a long time for me to come to that place, and I know it's slower than guilt-tripping you. Um, but I've seen, the, I've seen the other way. It doesn't work. Not long-term. It's like taking steroids. Works for a little while. Hadn't thought of that. No. <laughs> well, I'm not speaking from experience, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> One of the weeks we looked at um, seeing resources slightly different, we looked at it from the perspective that God owns everything and we get the steward some, as opposed to, for many it's a change of perspective in a sense, our money is our own and we give some back to God. Comment on that. What do you think about that? How do we make people think like that? Basically, God has privileged us with this money to steward and our resources. Well, you preach that sermon. You should comment on it. Yeah, true. And I made the comment this morning, which I thought was really good, that you, were, <laughs> you, were, you weren't there. So I'm just testing you to see if you listen to it on podcast. Yeah, well, see, I wasn't there because it was my birthday day off. <laughs> true. We give people a birthday day off, don't we, Mike? On your birthday, you can take a day off. Mine happened to fall on Sunday. Tough pickies, mate. <laughs> Go on, answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a wonderful way to look at it. Um, David, David said, all that, all that I have, yeah. God, you've given me. And what I give to you, I only give back that which you gave me in the first place. And rather than think, you mean I've got to give God 10%? The idea of, you mean to say I get to keep 90? Yeah. Is, is a change of thinking that probably is really healthy. Mm. I think it's a better way of thinking it. Yeah, and I think it then gives you the incredible privilege of God has given me this money. What do I do? Yeah, yeah. What do you want me to give this to in that sort of sense? You, let's ask you the question. So do you think tithing is a biblical and a New Testament principle? Yeah, I do. Um, and, and one scripture, and it's easy to remember, it's found in Matthew 23, verse 23. And it's where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and saying, you tithe, you know, you mint cumin and all the, you know, the smallest things, but you miss out justice and mercy. He said, don't miss out justice and mercy. He said, these things you should have done. He's talking about their tithing. But don't do it at the expense of that. And I love the Living Bible. It just says, yes, you should tithe. Uh, tithing 101 for dummies. Yes, you should tithe. By the way, tithe is a tenth. Some people say, well, I tithe 5%. A t token tithe. Yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> people say, oh, you know, I, I tithe 5%. That's like saying I 10%, 5%. A, a tithe is 10%. It's the starting place for being a people of generosity. Mm. If God has to squeeze it out of you and you, you know, like, oh, flip, oh, okay. Um, forget it. God loves a hilarious giver, the scripture says. Um, a cheerful giver. He... he wants us to be like him. And one of the outstanding characteristics of God in the scripture is that he's just unbelievably generous and extravagant. And he wants kids to grow up and be like him. And I think part of learning to be generous is just saying that belongs to him and I'll give it. And then on top of that, decide how, how you use other stuff. It's, it's a starting place. It's not the ceiling, it's the foundations of generosity. So when you, you know, oh man, you know, counting out your pennies and making sure God doesn't get one cent more than he's, you've missed the point. It's about generosity and learning to be. Tying in 
two things here. Uh, in one of your first messages, you talked about um, sort of doing the dishes, families do the dishes together. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was going to ask you, what are the spiritual dishes of, of, of the Christian faith? But I wanted to throw in this comment, which um, I think, how do I say this gently? I think it annoyed the both of us. You know, we often, a couple of people it came to our attention, the people sort of said, oh, Gateway must have plenty of money, so we're going to give it somewhere else because mm. Gateway doesn't need it. Mm. And that got a rise out of us, didn't it? It did. It did. I said to them, do you eat at Burger King and then go down to McDonald's and pay? Which, which went over like a lead balloon. It didn't go down well, did no, it? Have no. they left as well? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, you know, when you, you eat where you, you, you pay where you eat. You, you, uh, you know, I mean, I give to other things as well, mm -hmm, yeah. but, I, but I don't tithe to other things. Um, I, I give to other things, you know. Um, and I, that's, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to screw finances out of you, you know. I'm just um, telling you my heart. I, I, th I think when you're part of a family, you give to that family. You do the spiritual dishes, as it were. Yeah. You, you, you find out what needs to be done and what you can do, um, you do to help, whether it's volunteering or, you know, giving or praying. You're part of the family. This is too, too often in the West we treat church like so many other places. We're just consumers. We go in, we rifle through the shelves, we take what we want, we pay, hopefully, and mm. uh, we leave. You know, if we get a better deal somewhere else, we, we go somewhere else. Family is not like that. That's not how family works. That might be how supermarkets work. It might be how, you know, some other places work. Families don't behave like that. Families grow together, battle through their issues together, share yeah. the load, do yeah. the dishes. Yeah. That's, that's what families do. So we done some of the hard stuff. Let's go on to some of the easier stuff now. So how real do you see spiritual warfare? I don't think you can read the Bible and not believe that spiritual warfare is real. Uh, I mean, all you've got to do is read Ephesians chapter 6 for mm. a start. Um, look at Jesus' ministry. A significant portion of Jesus' ministry was a conflict with the, yeah. a conflict with the demonic. And uh, I, I've had too many experiences mm. not to believe in in the demonic and spiritual warfare, you know. And Paul continued in that. Absolutely. There was no, there was no yeah, difference. Yeah. I told a story this morning. Yeah. Um, m many years ago, I got a call from my son's school teacher, and he knew that we were believers, and he was going through a really difficult time, quite a tormented time. And he said, oh, Don, would you come around and, and share with me, you know, talk to me. I know you're Christians, and, and I think, you know, I'm ready to listen. So Karen and I went around, and um, lovely, lovely guy. We led him to the Lord. And he had some real spiritual demonic stuff going on. So we really prayed for him, and, and he got wonderfully free, got baptized in the Holy Spirit, and we went home just thrilled. You know, what a, what a wonderful night. About 2 o'clock in the morning, I woke up. Someone was choking me. Something was choking me. And I shot up out of bed. And I, I knew exactly what it was, just instantaneously. I knew it was a spiritual attack. I, I shot up out of bed, speaking in tongues at the top of my voice. And as I shot up, Karen came up at exactly the same time. We both, you know, just came up together like blinking jack-in-the-boxes. And she's speaking in tongues at the top of her voice. And, and I'm thinking, good on you, mate. Thank you for your help. And we'll, we'll, you know. And at the end of it, I said, oh, thanks, hon. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, something was choking me, and I thought you were 
you know, I thought you recognized what was happening and you were speaking in tongues and helping me. She said, nah. She said, I was getting choked. And, and I come up out of bed and I thought you were helping me. And I said, nah, that's every man for himself, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've had too many experiences like that not to believe in significant spiritual warfare. I've told the story many times, I think, and I don't want to bore everyone, but the one time when we were in the Philippines and having a real revival and in the midst of it all, um, just as I was about to get up to preach, this voice spoke very clearly in my head, I'm going to kill your daughter. Now, Janaea was about 12 at the time. She was home with the other missionaries' children. They were being babysat. And this voice, just the vehemence, the hatred in it, you know, I'm going to kill your daughter. I will teach you for coming here and doing this. You're on my territory, and I'm going to take your daughter's life. And it sort of so shocked me that I, I should never have done this, but I just said, how are you going to do that? And he just said, there's a fan in their room. I am going to jam it. It's going to burst into flame, and the place is going to burn down. And it was like, flop. So I didn't tell Karen she's there. I knew she'd panic and want to go straight home, and I was feeling a bit like that myself, to be honest. But I prayed. We went through the evening, um, finally got home, and the kids were fine, and I thought, okay. Next morning, I told the missionary couple what had happened, and they said, oh, Don, you wouldn't believe what happened. We came home last night, went up to check the girls, and the fan was jammed. It was red hot, ready to burst into flames. And it was like, oh, my Lord. And I'm pretty sure there was an angel going... <laughs> You know, making sure that it didn't. Uh, Karen's had some experiences where, honestly, um, dreaming that she was really in a struggle, fighting against a spiritual force, woke up and was dragged across the floor while fully awake. So when you talk to me about spiritual warfare, I believe. Mm. Okay, I, I, I believe it. We've had experiences here at Gateway. Yeah where the Lord has warned me in a dream of a season that we were about to go into several times of real spiritual warfare, and one particular one, it, it was, you'll, reckon, you'll remember it well, it was very, very yeah. difficult, yes. and there was some real spiritual warfare about it, and I'm just so grateful that the Lord showed me what it was before it started. Okay, then, my next question fits nicely there. So how do we have a healthy approach to spiritual warfare without being weird? Now, some of you are thinking this story is already weird, and he's already <laughs> weird. And if you believe in the devil, as far as our, our, our culture is concerned, you're already off the scale. You're already weird if you believe in the devil. So, um, but, but uh, again, you, you're asking real hard questions. When, uh, when I was a school teacher, when some little, uh, some little pupil asked, <laughs> asked, a, <laughs> asked a really difficult question, you know, this. Every school teacher knows this one. That is a really good question. Now, I'm going to set you an assignment. I want you to go home this week and research that question. <laughs> don't answer it. Just get them to go away and answer it. You know. So, uh, yeah, so I'll ask you the question again. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, Chris. I think people who enjoy it or run to it make me nervous. Yeah, me too. Make me nervous. Not yeah, me too. Ever some of the right? stuff, so honestly, some of the stuff that I see and have seen over the years in spiritual warfare, I, I call bang at the moon. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just think, really? Where, show me, where's that in the Bible? Yeah. Where's that in Scripture? Show me anything that looks like that. And I think whenever you get off Bible territory, mm. 
I, I want to I understand how you, what the rationale is, you know. Um, I, some, I sometimes think, though, this, where sometimes people get it wrong is that we as Christians have grace for certain things. Mm. But sometimes we get on the territory that we should never be getting on to. And it's just like, what are you doing? And yeah, we don't yeah. have, I mean, Jesus has the power and Jesus has the ability to do whatever he likes, when he likes, that sense. Yeah. But sometimes we have not been given that same mandate. I agree. That good, does concern good me. What? Good answer. <laughs> I researched it from this morning. <laughs> <laughs> so, similar vein, um, someone wrote in and said, how do we differentiate between spiritual attack and just being stupid. Um, they acknowledged that there was better ways to phrase it, so um, I'm just going to do that. And so I wanted to comment on, on this in that whole area of spiritual warfare. When I'm faced in those situations, I have three categories that I try to place an incident or a series of events into. The first category is that we're all broken by sin, that I'm broken, I'm just, my heart is devious, you know, I'm in, a, I'm in that sense, and, and it's the brokenness of my own life, so it could come into that one. Second category is the fact is we live in a broken world mm. and we are broken and mm. people around us are broken, relationships, the earth is broken, creation's mm. broken, everything. Mm. Mm. And then the third category is that there is an enemy committed to our destruction. Yeah. He wants to, to completely destroy us, whether we accept him or not. Yeah. And part, for me, the challenge often is to put it in one, two, or three. Sometimes, though, you find people, they don't take any responsibility for their own brokenness and they want to shift it into category three mm. Mm. because it lets them off Oh, well, it's, it's, it's the enemies having to go at it. No, mm. you're an idiot. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, but it's just like, no, you've done, made some bad choices yeah, and exactly. you've got to live in the consequence. Yeah. Do you want to comment on that? No, I think you've just done a really good job on it. So, <laughs> um, I mean, the, you, there's the gift of discernment. Yeah. There, there's, again, community. You know, you can be in a situation and sometimes you think, I don't quite know what's happening in here here. So, I mean, I'll talk to you or talk to somebody I trusted and say, well, what do you think's happening here? Can you give me some insight? So you're not alone in, the, in that. And, and to, the reality is sometimes those lines can be yeah. blurred. You know, I mean, our own brokenness, the enemy can come in on that and just push it further than it should normally go, you know, and, and it can become bondage, you know. Yeah. Anger is... is um, a work of the flesh, but you continually yeah. give yourself to it, and suddenly something comes in and starts binding and pushing. You know, um, it's interesting. But in Galatians five, witchcraft is a is a listed in the sins of the flesh, yeah. and you think witchcraft? I, I thought that was like straight out occult. Well, witchcraft is the desire to control. It's the desire to manipulate people, and and when that gets out of balance, yeah, it can it can go into the occult yep. really easily. But it starts in our own brokenness. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, I probably haven't answered your question. I, sometimes, again, it's a difficult question. Yeah. You ask the Lord, Lord, what's happening here? What, what, how should I respond to this? And um, if necessary and when it's wise, you talk to good and trusted people. Get I, them to pray for you. And I think you. The, the thing about asking questions or in community or talking to something, one of the things that we as a leadership or as a pastoral team is like somebody may come to us with the, this issue then somebody else comes with the same issue. And then a third yeah. or fourth or fifth, yeah. which in isolation, other people would never put together. Sure. But once we see a pattern happening in our, uh, in our congregation, okay, what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. There's an enemy at work here. Yeah. And it's not just category one and category two. And then sometimes we miss out on getting some of that wisdom, some of that insight, because we, we don't talk to people. No. I, I remember a time in Cambridge where we went through, a t where 
nearly every baby that was born over a period of time was either prem or really sick or, yeah. you know, we had a lot of trouble with our, our little ones. And I remember coming to work one morning and as I got into work, the house, the office had been broken into. It was obviously kids, they hadn't taken a lot, but they'd broken in and rampaged through the drawers and it's like, oh, that's all we need on top of what's happening. Got the police and they checked that out. Next day, come back, same thing happened. And I was like, what's happening here? And I remember sitting down and just feeling like the Lord said, you are being broken into. Mm. Yeah, you're physically being broken into, but what's happening with your kids mm. is more than just coincidental. You are being yeah. broken into. And as I'm thinking about that, my sister actually was part of the congregation, rang me and said, hey, Don, I just got this scripture, and she had a scripture from Isaiah about the enemy coming after our children. And it was like, this yeah. is more than that. So we gathered together and started to pray. The funny thing about that was when the kids came and ramp, they, took a, they took a mobile phone, or, you know, I mean, it was one of those brick phones, it was a long time ago, <laughs> and they took it, you know. And um, uh, this gang guy who was sort of coming to church, he walked into the office and the police were there and he looked around and said, what's happening, Don? And I said, oh, we've been broken into. He said, lost anything? And I said, oh, not much, some loose change and a phone. Hmm. He said, walked out. About three o'clock that afternoon, comes in holding the phone. Walked over to me, put it on the desk. No questions asked, no lies told, he said. I said, whatever. <laughs> Walked out. And again, I just felt the Lord say, pray and I will restore. Mm. And we never lost one of those kids. Yeah, um, uh, although some of them were on the borderline yeah. for a little bit. So, you know, there was the scripture, there was God's voice, there were these circumstances. All that put together. Community. Yeah. 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 You start thinking there's more to it than this. And for some of you, oh, I think that's super spiritual nonsense. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. A couple of weeks ago, you talked on the subject of um, abortion. And one of the questions that came in, it says this, many Christians are being vocal on social media in their stand against uh, abortion. If Christians speak out, it's seen as fundamentalism, raging against popular cultural beliefs. If Christians don't speak out, we are seen as weak in our convictions. Any thoughts or any advice on that? Oh, man. Um, I, I think <laughs> I, I'd want to say speak, but how you speak is really important. If you're just angry and full of vitriol, nobody's going to listen to that. You know, James says the anger of men doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. No. And I think we've got to try yeah. and be kind and gracious. True, we sang before, you know, full of truth and full of grace. Mm. And, uh, and uh, that, that's a mixture that's actually incredibly hard to get right. But I think, I, I think we've got to say something. I mean, we're in the midst of a holocaust. In New Zealand alone, we lose um, a population the size of Cambridge every year between 15 and 18,000 children. Uh, and I don't know where you sit, but I want to just say to you, New Zealand's, New Zealand's abortion laws are some of the most barbaric in the world. And we have an issue. Um, again, I mentioned this morning, since 1980, we have lost more people than the combined population of Wellington and Christchurch. And here we are, saying, we haven't got enough nurses, we haven't got enough doctors, we haven't got enough teachers. We need people to come to New Zealand to work. Oh, it's like, get a clue. Mm. Uh, 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 honestly, it's, 
unbelievably disturbing. But for most of us, we swim in this cultural current. We don't give it much thought. So many people have been taken in by the language um, of bodily autonomy, reproductive rights, uh, my choice, my body. Uh, What I tried to do in that sermon was say, man, there are holes in that logic that you could drive a horse and cart through. I know you're going to read something, but I just want on that point, one of the things that we were looking at is mm. that the whole issue around language and yeah. how the argument from the secular society is so clever. Yeah. And so as we, um, if, you listen to, if you listen to the arguments, whether it be on social media or whether it be on TV, it's always like, oh, they always raise the issue of incest or rape or the mum's life in danger. And we got some statistics from the Goodmarsh um, Institute, which is one of the highly regarded ones in the States. And if you think of that, what we hear again on the news and those programs, that 0.001% of abortions are resulting from an incestuous relationship. 0.001. 0.85 in rape situations. It worked out that 90 8.59%, there was no social, economic, or health risk at all. It yeah. was just economic decisions. Sure. Yeah. And if you listen to the language of what we hear, you'd think, you'd think it was like so much different. Always bring those out. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it should break our hearts. And, and I'm not trying to be confrontational, but I would challenge you if you are sitting there and saying, well, Don, I'm, I'm pro-choice, then I would ask you, you go and read about how abortions take place. Mm. You go and listen to a video <laughs> online called, uh, watch a video online called The Silent Scream. I'm not just trying to be dramatic, but most people who say, oh, I'm pro-choice, you say, do you know how abortions actually take place? And they haven't got a clue. And it's barbaric. And as believers, I, I don't, mm. I can't understand it. And, and I think we have to say something. I, I read this during the week and it just made me think about things. It said, um, to the one who doubts the worth of doing anything if you can't do everything, and it goes like this, you say the little efforts that I will make will do no good. They will never prevail to tip the hovering scale where justice hangs in the balance. I don't think I ever thought they would but I am prejudiced beyond debate in favour of my right to choose which side shall feel the stubborn ounces of my weight. And I don't think we'll turn around New Zealand's situation, but I want to put the stubborn ounces of my weight into saying life is precious. Every life is made in the image of God. And life begins at conception. There is no doubt about that. There is no debate about that. The whole idea of personhood is just subject of nonsense. Sorry to be so straight, but that's, I feel that powerfully. Um, and, and I would challenge you, if you're a believer, and say, I'm pro-choice. Who's discipling you? Who's shaping you? Is it the Word of God? Can you justify that decision from the scriptures? And if you can't, I'd want to say to you, I think you're being discipled by our culture. And that's always a dangerous place to sit. 
That was a bit more serious than it was this morning, eh? It was. Good, though. Was it? Good. Yeah. <laughs> we got about six minutes left, and I just want to get on and touch on the whole area of the occult, and a lot of the questions that we came, had received, received were on the whole issue of the occult, so I'm going to just throw them out there, and we can see where that takes us. Six minutes. This is well, like speed dating, I'm right? saying, yeah. <laughs> I'm saying six minutes to give them a sense of, gosh, she's coming to an end. Okay. It probably could go for another 15. Uh, uh, but it won't. Only 15. <laughs> okay, question. How influential and what effect do movies have on us that feature spells, sorcery, dark powers, evil versus good, etc., etc.? Oh, man. In six minutes? Yeah. Well, as you're thinking about it, I did, a, did some research on this. Some of this you will know or something. It's like they, you can... Go back and trawl through uh, some of the famous stars that have been uh, in films and how it has left them mentally and emotionally damaged. Probably one of the most famous one would be Heath Ledger, where, who committed suicide in 2008. He was um, cast in the role of the Joker in the Batman series. And um, they, his closest friends and his entourage will say that when he studied the role of the Joker for that Batman series, he just, his personality completely changed, and they would say that his suicide was down to taking on the darkness of the character of the Joker. For some of you are, who are st study uh, films and whatever, back in the, was it the 50s, but 35, 40 years ago, the, one of the famous um, horror films was a film called Psycho and, um, by Alfred Hitchcock, and there's a scene in there where uh, a lady by the name of Janet Lee, that's her real name, was attacked in, in, the, in the shower uh, by a madman. She has never got in a shower ever since. Never, ever. She's only ever had baths. And that is, that is not one or two exceptions. There is quite a catalogue of people that have been damaged by it. Yeah. One, one thing I would say in terms of the time that we have left, a very wise pastor was asked one time by a guy who had just newly been saved, and the guy said, I, I love horror movies. He said, every Sunday night I go <laughs> to the movies to see horror movies. He said, I, I've just got saved. Am I allowed to go to horror movies? Is, are, are Christians allowed to do that? Well, he pastor could have said, no, you know, that's really evil. Do. Um, what he said to the guys, he said, I'll tell you what. He said, why don't you on Sunday night take Jesus and go to the movies with him? The guy goes, can I do that? He said, yeah, take Jesus. See if he likes it. Okay, he said. So off he went, bought two tickets. The guy, <laughs> the guy behind the ticket office looked round, so it's, looks, it's, who's, who's the other ticket for? The guy says, Jesus. <laughs> okay. Uh -huh. Five minutes after the movie started, he came out. He said, Jesus didn't like that. Uh -huh. he, he didn't like it. And I, I think that's a really good thing to say. Lord, are you okay with this? Yeah. Are you okay? Are we doing all right with this? Because I think you'll get a real sense real quick. I would make a very... There's a distinction between fantasy literature and occult literature. Fantasy literature, you know, whether it be the Chronicles of Narnia, um, The Lord of the Rings... Um, Cinderella. Cinderella. That's what you said this morning. I did. I, I said, didn't get it then, but... I said, Sleeping Beauty. I said, Sleeping Beauty is politically incorrect now because the prince didn't ask consent to kiss her. No, sorry. And so you're not allowed to watch Sleeping Beauty, sorry. Um, Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, with um, Charles, Dickens. Charles Dickens. All of that stuff. That, that's fantasy literature. You know it's fantasy literature. It, it doesn't... It doesn't 
uh, look like the real world in any way, shape or form. You go into a strange land through a wardrobe or through an unusual train station and everything about the world is different. Mm. Occult literature is, the landscape is real and it invites you in and it invites imitation. So I would make a distinction there. I'm, I know there are some people who won't touch anything with witches or, uh, I, I, yeah, it's like, okay, half, half of Grimm's fairy tales are gone. Mm. Uh, and you're left with Peppa Pig, and I'm sure there's a warlog somewhere. That, you know. Anyway, that's How did we minutes, get this right? morning onto the sound of music? What was that about? Uh, oh, way back in the 50s and 60s, Pentecostals weren't allowed to go to the movies at all. So it wasn't the movies, it wasn't sound of music was banned. Well, was the funny it? thing it was, been. yeah, well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> 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 Let's keep going. I, no, time's up. I remember Bob Mumford saying that one time the Lord spoke to him and said, I want you to go to the movies. And he's a Pentecostal preacher, so I can't go to the movies. It's like, that, that's wicked. Mm. And, and he felt so strongly. So he went to the paper and looked, looked down and there was sound of music. And the Lord said, that one, go to that one. And he said, really? He said he went, just loved it. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't think God's against movies, Okay. And, and, I'm not, and I'm, we're not a kind of church that says, don't go there, don't watch that. But, but, but some of, for, for example, my son-in-law oh, yeah, wanted, uh, one of my grandkids was, he loves Marvel, and the latest Marvel movie wanted to go, and he heard Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, or whatever it's called, was a bit odd, so he said him and a couple of friends went to check it out. He said when they came out, they got down on their knees and prayed. They said that that was. They felt so defiled by it. it was so occultic, and that that's kind of scary. Yeah. I said this morning. I just uh, was asking somebody about Doctor Strange, and they're really into the Marvels. They know what they're talking about. They watch them all. I said, "Talk to me about this film." And they said, "It is a departure from the normal ones. It, it is a darkness." That he says there was a something spiritual far worse than they've seen before, mm. and this is a, a departure. And somebody asked about um, Stranger Things, you know, the, the Netflix. I just think, um, you know, if you're watching it, why? <laughs> why? Yeah, why put yourself, what's your story about getting so close? Yeah, yeah. Three guys going for a job. I can drive that close to the edge without going over it. The other guy says, I can do that close. The other guy says, I don't go near it. He got the job. Yeah. And, and honestly, um, so, some of those things you just think, ex exactly, it's like, why? Yeah. What, what, what are you thinking? Um, sit there with Jesus. Seriously. Don't, you don't have to buy him a ticket. He doesn't, he's, he, you know, save your money. But ask him, are you okay with this? See what he says. Okay, one last question. Yep. In your message, you said that when somebody comes to you and you say to them, have you been in the occult? And they say, no, they haven't. Then you ignore that. Then you go through a list. A yep. number of people have asked for that list. Okay. You ready? Have you been involved in the occult? And everyone says, no. Then no. I go, okay, do you have any Masonic Lodge connections? Either you or your parents or your grandparents. Have you been ever involved in witchcraft? Have you been to a fortune teller? Have you had your teacups read? Do you play with Ouija boards? Have you had a tarot card reading? Have you been in a seance, you know, where they put yeah. your finger on the glass? Have you been to a medium? Have you had your palm read? Are you into numerology? 
uh, automatic writing, color therapy where they diagnose you with pendulums, um, have you done astral travel, levitation, transcendental meditation, have you been involved in false cults, Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses, and an interesting one, have you done yoga? And people go, what? Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, so I just do it for the exercise. I said, aren't there other ways of doing exercise? Why, why yoga? So, oh, well, everybody does it. That's, that's okay, isn't it? No, it's not, actually, in my view, no. for what it's worth. If you trace yoga, there's a, in Hindu philosophy, and there's a god at the, at the base of your neck, there's a god at the base of your spine, and the yoga exercises are designed to remove the blockages between those two gods so that they can sexually fuse. It's like, why would you want to do that? Seriously. Now, I know some of you say, Donna, only do it for the exercise. There are other ways to exercise. Why, why would you want to go that close to the edge? Now, you can disagree with me. And I know we've gone over time. People come up and say, well, what about, um, what about um, acu acupuncture? Uh, what about martial arts? For those two, for me, all hangs on the practitioner. Because um, pressure points are physical realities. How you, how you interact with physical um, pressure points, you can do it with thumbs, you can do it with a needle. You, you don't have to get weird. Now, some people do. And I would, I would struggle with a practitioner that got real weird with that stuff. Mm. Um, martial arts, the same. Who's the practitioner? What do they actually think? Because judo's like wrestling. It's just, you know, push, shove, using the opponent's strength and, and I've talked to people and they said, it's not an ounce of spirituality in it, Don. It doesn't exist. So, and some it does. Yeah. And, and it's the practitioner. So I'd want to do my homework on that. And sorry, I've gone over time. All good. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.